This is Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Welcome. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me in segments two and three on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific economic commentator and author, uh, and he'll be talking to me today about the greater, greater fool theory in the market, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. However, in this segment, I want to talk to you about something that was, in my view, huge news last week, but it went largely unreported. And it has potentially significant consequences for you and your dreams of retirement or financial independence. Now, for several years now, I've been reporting and commenting on the gradual yet undeniable move away from the U.S. dollar around the globe. Now, the U.S. dollar does still enjoy reserve status, meaning it's the most widely used currency in global trade, but that reserve status is now being openly challenged and was challenged last week during the Federal Reserve's annual symposium that is held in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, each year. The governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, advocated that a new global monetary system be developed to replace the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Now, I would suggest that these comments are nothing short of shocking. Now, the New York Times reported, and I'm just going to give you a brief bit from that article, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney took aim at the U.S. dollar's destabilizing role in the world economy, and on Friday said central banks might need to join together to create their own replacement reserve currency. In other words, replace the dollar. Carney, as quoted in the New York Times article, said, the best solution would be a diversified multipolar financial system, something that could be provided by technology. And here's a quote. It is an open question whether a new synthetic hegemonic currency would best be provided by the public sector, perhaps through a network of central bank digital currencies. Carney went on to say that even a passing acquaintance with monetary history suggests the center or the U.S. dollar domineering influence on on global trade won't hold. Now, Carney is suggesting what has really been my approach to providing perspective to listeners here on the program when it comes to money. It's also the premise of the New Retirement Rules book. The premise is simply this. History repeats itself. And history teaches us that fiat currencies, meaning currencies that are currencies, by government fiat, by government declaration, have a 100% failure rate. Now, given world economic circumstances, there's no reason to think that that perfect track record of failure will change anytime soon, although failure is not imminent in my view. Now, Carney made another comment at which we should look more closely. He said this, It is an open question whether a new synthetic hegemonic currency would best be provided by the public sector, perhaps through a network 
of central bank digital currencies. And a digital currency would be a currency like Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Well, let's break down that term, synthetic hegemonic currency. And to do that, we're going to pull out Webster's Dictionary. That's Noah Webster, if you happen to be under the age of 35. Synthetic is defined as a substance that imitates a natural product. Hegemonic is defined as ruling or dominant in a political context, and the definition of currency is a system of money. So if I put those definitions all together, I get a dominant system of money that imitates a natural one. A dominant system of money that imitates a natural one. Do I dare to say this? Fake money. Or should I say, more fake money. Because when you think about today's money, the money you have in your purse or wallet, here's the reality. Money is not wealth. Today's money is a claim on wealth. It's a claim ticket. See, money is a vehicle in which one can store economic energy until you're ready to deploy it. If you go to work and expend economic energy, you're awarded with money, which can be used to claim real wealth. Now, real wealth would typically be physical assets like food, automobiles, real estate, or things like that. So when you get the money, you can spend it or deploy its economic energy immediately, or you can save the money and deploy the reserved economic energy later. Now, countries store economic energy just like people do. And the economic energy stored by countries is used in trade with other countries. Now, for most of history, money was not a claim on wealth. Money was wealth with assets like gold and silver serving as money. After World War II through 1971, the U.S. dollar was wealth, at least wealth indirectly. It had a direct link to gold. U.S. dollars could be redeemed for gold at the rate of $35 an ounce. However, in 1971, the U.S. dollar was transformed from real money and real wealth to a claim on wealth. That's when then-President Nixon eliminated the link between the U.S. dollar and gold. Now, Mr. Carney says that we need to accelerate the current worldwide move away from the U.S. dollar. He didn't use those words, but he floated the idea of central banks controlling or putting in place a digital currency, a Bitcoin-like currency that's controlled by central bankers. Now, it's my view that a synthetic hegemonic currency will likely be developed and it will likely be implemented. It is also my view that history teaches us that such a system will not survive long term unless there is a direct link from the synthetic hegemonic currency to real wealth like gold or silver. And there's talk of such a gold-backed cryptocurrency being developed. In May of this year, Elvira Nabiolina, who's governor of the Bank of Russia, said that she and her colleagues were reviewing a proposal to develop a cryptocurrency. She said this in a speech, and I quote, As for mutual settlements, we will consider, of course, the proposal on a gold-backed cryptocurrency. See, history teaches us that money evolves over time. 
In the new retirement rules book, I describe what we call the currency money cycle, where money cycles from wealth to a claim on wealth back to real wealth again. And it's my belief that we're nearing the next transition. Money will be moving back to real wealth again at some future point. Now, if you haven't yet taken steps to understand this and protect yourself, I would encourage you to educate yourself. You can visit socialsecuritydinner.com and get information on our upcoming event in your area. And you can also visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and get more information there. I'd encourage you to do so. I'll be back after these words with Carl Denninger. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. You can read Carl's work at market-ticker.org. The website, again, is market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check that out. And, uh, Carl, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you for having me on. So, Carl, uh, crazy world we live in. Um, I think $15 trillion of sovereign debt is now yielding negative interest rates. It appears that we're on a path of QE uh, to infinity. Uh, Where does it all stop? Well, it stops when the asset price appreciation that gets forced by this uh, runs into people's ability to pay. I mean, if that's (laughs) the, the goal of this, whether stated or not, I mean, what they what they all try to tell you is, oh no, you know, it's about uh, overall economic condition. It's just nonsense. the The price of any financed asset is essentially the inverse of the yield of the money necessary to buy it. When you think about it, it's it's very simple. If you have a financial calculator, you can calculate the uh, principal and interest payment on a house or a third mortgage at a given interest rate. Okay, and you can also punch in the payment, principal and interest and an interest rate over a period of time, it'll tell you how much the house is worth. All right, so if you have $1,500 that you can spend a month, and you know what the interest rate is, it tells you how big a house you can buy, right? how much the house is worth. So the problem is that in the commercial real estate world, the same thing applies, um, but essentially all commercial businesses rent their, uh, you know, their, their physical locations, okay? Your coffee shop on the corner, the grocery store, whatever. As interest rates collapse and are forced negative, those property values essentially, at at the zero boundary and below, um, the value is infinite because you're being paid to borrow the money. Or the amount of appreciation in those assets goes vertical. Um, However, the store owner still has to pay rent, and he can't at an infinite valuation, and therefore he closes. He goes out of business. Uh, this and not Amazon, by the way, is a primary reason why you're seeing so many retail failures in today's world. Um, the same thing applies to people. And, of course, about half of the population rents their residence, and so this hits them immediately. But the uh, the common chestnut is that a house appreciation helps the ordinary homeowner, and that's false. Um, think about the young couple who has a small house. Uh, they want to have a couple of kids, but the house isn't big enough, so they want to buy a bigger one. Um, they sell their bubble house, but the new one they buy is also bubbled by an equivalent amount. They cannot afford it because the property taxes, of course, go up at, uh, along you know, ratably with the value. 
and the carrying cost is simply beyond their means. Um, a person who is retiring and downsizes can attempt to capture some of that that value uh, from the bubble. However, they still end up having to, you have to have somewhere to live. I mean, unless, you know, your disposition is uh, coinciding with your taking the ultimate dirt nap. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's no escaping this. And, and what ultimately folds this back is, uh, is those costs. So, Carl, I noticed this past week that uh, the German government had what I'll call a failed bond auction. I think, as I recall, they sold about one-third of the bonds they were hoping to at negative interest rates. Is this finally a wake-up call? Have we seen the, the end of this, and now we're going to see the trend reverse, or do you view that as an aberration? Um, you know, I really don't know. We have we have an interesting situation here in the United States, and, and you have the same situation that arises more or less around the world, which is that bonds used to be a thing that were bought for coupon. Okay, so you bought a bond because you perceived it to be safe, especially in the case of sovereign debt from your government, and and you were living off the interest payments. Well, of course, if the interest is negative, then you're not living off anything, right, because you're losing money. So that isn't done anymore, though. What What happens now with essentially all cases is that the bonds, because they're sovereigns, um, have a zero risk weighting, and so you you buy those bonds, you then post them as collateral to buy more bonds, and what you're doing is you are speculating that the rate will either be lower on the next one that's issued or more negative in this case, and if it is, uh, the value of your existing bond will go up because I can buy your existing one and it's worth more than the new one, which has a lower rate of interest. Uh, and then you sell them and you make money. And this is how the banks have essentially made most of their money on their fixed income desks. This is FICC income, okay, shows up in bank balance sheets. And and it's rendered the premise of market rates for borrowing money to be almost completely meaningless. Uh, but the side effects are not meaningless. And they're, uh, you know, and so what the, what the government is doing is is filling those, uh, that, that fiscal hole that's caused by the destruction of capital. Uh, with additional deficit spending, and, and in the case of Germany, of course, they're they're allegedly not permitted to spend in deficit. But over here in the United States, we're, we're doing that to the tune of about a trillion dollars a year. So essentially, this is the greater fool theory. And uh, since the banks are, it's, it's kind of like the fox guarding the hen house, to use an old proverb, because the uh, the bank, uh, the central bank, really determines the interest rate, and then it's the member banks that are making money. So. Um, do you see this actually playing out like like Greenspan said this past week that uh, there's no barrier to to negative is just a number? Do you, do you, how low can these things go? How negative can they go? Well, the, the challenge the challenge isn't so much that you can take them negative to whatever degree. The challenge is the side effects that are caused by it. Okay, so so that's where the problem comes in is that it's you know the the boundary isn't zero interest rates per se. The boundary is that when you can't afford to rent a house and the grocery store on the corner can't afford to rent its commercial real estate anymore, then this all folds back. And the problem with this is that if the government has issued debt at a negative interest rate. And then that rate of interest goes positive. When they have to roll that debt over, they can't make the payments. Okay, so so this is this is the old saw about well, 
you know, how, how'd you go bankrupt? Well, very slowly and then all at once. And, and that's essentially what ends up happening here because when this unwinds, and it eventually will, the result is going to be catastrophic. You're not going to be able to make those payments and you're going to get sovereign defaults. So if they try to, to quote-unquote print money to get out of this, uh, that just drives up everybody else's cost of living even higher. I mean, it, it, you know, this, this so-called zero inflation thing that we keep hearing is a chimera. If you look at the CPI index, this, this print comes out every month. Supposedly, a new car has an index of 148 as of the last report when I looked at it. Uh, and that was just you know, a few days ago. That means that it's supposedly a new car is 148 percent of the price that it was in the base year, which is 1982. All right, well, a GMC 1500 half-ton pickup um, in 1982 was about $7,000. So would you mind telling me where I can buy um, the, a brand-new GMC half-ton pickup for about 11, 12 grand? It, there's, there's no such vehicle. It doesn't exist. All right, and yet this is supposedly zero inflation. This is what we supposedly have. Well, and Kyle, I had uh, um, Mr. Williams of Shadow Stats on the program a few weeks ago, and he explained how these numbers are really, you know, manipulated, and and and, and you know, it's, it's very subjective process. Don't you think this is the end game, though? I mean, uh, ultimately, uh, you either default or you print money, and you default that way. I mean, isn't isn't that the road we're on worldwide? I mean, isn't it QE to to infinity at this point? Um, well, it's, it's, it's attempt to QE to infinity, but, but again, the, the problem with these processes is that the intent is to drive asset prices higher. All right. I mean, you, you know, you just look at our current president, he right he essentially considers the Dow Jones industrial index to be a referendum on his presidency. Yeah, correct. <laughs> I mean, that's insane, but, but that is what, that's the world we live in today. So. There you are. He considers that to be a referendum on his presidency. That's that's how he judges whether or not he's being successful as president or not. Uh, there's nothing you or I can do about that. That's uh, you know that's politicians made a decision. That's what he's going to do. All right, fine. Except that what happens when this you know when this folds back? Because the problem is when you look at what's going on right now. We just we, you know you you get the current data and you look at it, and what you're seeing is these fixed costs are are folding back on individuals and small businesses along with larger businesses. So, you know, I, I don't know exactly where this, where this ends and when it actually comes apart, but the idea that this can go on forever and that the government is just going to continue to print money and continue to inflate asset prices uh, sounds wonderful, except uh, you, you really have to, you know, you really have to look at this and say, well, you know, what what is the side effect of that? Who does that hurt? Can that be sustained? And can people actually manage to to pay for those those assets either in rent or or if you allegedly own your house? What happens when your property tax triples? Right. Yeah, that's all related. So, Carl, um, at this point, are you uh, are you suggesting to listeners that they start to transition assets to more tangible things? Um. Well, I don't know. I mean, I am not, I am not a fan of the so-called hard, you know, hard money stuff because the the problem with any sort of of asset appreciation 
or protection in that regard is that it becomes trivially easy for the government to attack it. Uh, and, and, you know, we saw what happened during the depression. They did exactly that. If you, you know, if you decided you were going to try to hide from FDR's monetary shenanigans and gold, you couldn't spend it for 40 years. Um, <laughs> by the, by the way, most of the people who attempted to do that were dead before, you know, before they were able to spend it again. <laughs> that doesn't do you any good at all. So right. you have to be very careful here in that really the, the answer to these problems is political. But as long as we have, you know, 99% of the population that sits there and says, well, you know, we're just going to go along with this. I, I don't know that there's an answer that actually works. And if, if you look at, you know, you have people say, well, you know, go expat, go somewhere else. And the question is, where? I mean, you know, this is going on worldwide. This isn't just in the United States. In fact, if you really want to be, you know, if, if you just want to look at this on a comparative standpoint, we're still the best house in a bad neighborhood in that we still actually have some sort of positive rates. Yeah, exactly. The rest of the world is all negative. Even Italy, you know, over one and two year um, government uh, uh, debt is now yielding negative interest rates. And look at the look at the uh, complete train wreck Italy is at this point. Well, yeah. And, you know, the thing that's interesting is that remember, we all heard about this, how Greece and Italy were saved by the ECB's whatever it takes thing. Right. Mario Draghi and his, his you know, years ago, years ago. Nobody seems to remember this. I thought everything was fine over there. How come this didn't work? Because it never works, right? Well, yeah, it was never going to work, but who's holding anybody accountable for that? So, Carl, we have about uh, a little over a minute left in this segment. Um, where do you see as a result of uh, this this policy, this worldwide policy, where do you see uh, politics going in general? Do you Do you see the the socialistic uh, movement that's gaining some steam here, picking up more steam, because historically speaking, whenever you see big economic change, often you have big political change that accompanies that. What, what's your take? Yeah, I think there's a real, I, I think there's a real risk of that getting completely out of control. I mean, I, you know, the, just as an example, which I know is a little bit off the, you know, off the economic topic is this whole thing about gun control. Um, you know, the facts are that you are, two to three times more likely to be stabbed with a knife and die than be shot with a rifle of all kinds. Okay. And yet we all, you know, everybody is screaming about, you know, assault rifles, assault rifles. It's irrelevant in the context of actual murders, people who you know, commit heinous crimes. And yet this is where we go. Why? Well, you know, what if what if you're a government and you're thinking about the future and, and uh, the horrible things that may come and that, and that you may decide that you want to try to implement in order to force things down people's throats? Uh, what happens if the EBT cards stop working, for example? Or, or, as is much more likely, if the medical, the, the government-funded medical system, Medicare and Medicaid, which is very relevant to people that are retired or close to it, um, by 2024, that is no longer going to be able to be funded without changing the law to allow an unlimited deficit impact within those two programs, which is currently not allowed. So you're either going to have that system collapse within the next four to five years, or Congress is going to have to pass a law that says that they're no longer limited to their reserves and in, in their special treasuries plus the taxes they take in. If they do the latter, then you're going to see another three to four hundred billion a year instantly appear on the deficit numbers. 
Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, our guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. You can read his work at market-ticker.org. The website is market-ticker.org. And I will be back to continue my conversation with Carl when RLA Radio returns. I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. Joining me on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, if you're just joining us, you can read uh, Carl's uh, blog at market-ticker.org. I always enjoy reading it, and I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, again, the website, market-ticker.org. So, Carl, you said something in the last segment that I'm sure probably – uh, piqued some of our listeners' interest, particularly those that uh, maybe rely on Medicare for health care. And you had said that by 2024, uh, these programs are going to be unable to be funded unless there is a law change, essentially. So let's dig into that a little bit. Can you can you drill down on that a little bit and just explain to the listeners exactly how it works now and exactly where the problem will be? Sure. Well, uh, so Medicare and Social Security, for that matter, uh, have in their in the enabling laws a clause that they cannot run a deficit, a formal fiscal deficit. So this has not been a problem up until now because what happens is that when they, they both started to go into formal deficit, in other words, they pay out more than they take in a few years ago, but when that happened, uh, there are treasury bonds that the, ex the excess taxes that were collected over all these years were used to buy these treasury certificates. Now, they are, they are treasury bonds, they're debt. However, they're not marketable. In other words, the Social Security Administration can't turn around and sell you one. Okay? They, ha they have to be held for that particular purpose and redeemed for it. But the way the law is structured, the only funding sources that those systems have is the taxes they collect and that reserve. All right. So if they don't take in enough in taxes, they have to spend, they have to redeem some of those bonds. And the, what they do is they hand those back to Treasury and then Treasury turns around and holds an auction and sells some more to the public in order to make up the difference. All right. So this is all fine and well up until you run out of those extras. <laughs> and and the problem with, with Medicare and specifically, all right, if you look at Social Security, Social Security takes in about 12 and a half percent of every dollar up to the cap that you earn from the first dollar of your earnings. That's a fairly high uh, tax rate when you think about it. And, and Social Security is currently running a deficit of about 12 or 13%. In other words, it's, it's funding about 13% of its benefit payments in excess of the taxes that it collects in a year. Medicare, on the other hand, is 2.9. It's a tiny tax by comparison. And it is running approximately a 70 to 80 percent funding deficit right now. And, and you know, wrap your head around that. When you add Medicaid, which is not funded at all, it's a pure giveaway. Uh, you end up in a situation where the tax revenue that's coming in is only about 20 percent of the money that's going out. And Carl, when 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 we see. Uh this fallout that we talked about in the last segment that is, is inevitable, that obviously dramatically affects tax revenues. So 
uh, we're going to have to see major changes uh, in these programs. What do you think these changes might look like? Well, there's only one that can possibly work, but I don't think it's what they'll do because they haven't done it yet. Um, you are today overpaying for everything medical in this country to the tune of about 500%. But you're paying about five times what it would cost in the market system. And the reason is that all of these firms, essentially every one of them, from the corner, uh, you know, corner clinic all the way to the pharmaceutical company to the hospital, every one of them is violating 100-plus-year-old antitrust law. They are price fixing. They are control. They are they're lying to people. They're they're you know you come in there. They say, well, you know, you're under insurance for blah blah blah, and then you get this drive-by surprise bill from somebody who's not within your plan. You'd never consented to that. If you tried to do that anywhere else, you'd go to prison for a hundred years. All right. I mean, you know, trying to give somebody a blanket bill for something that they that they never had any opportunity to to speak about or authorize. Forget it. That doesn't work anywhere in the economy except in healthcare. Um, the the insulin producers have essentially divided up the market in the United States, so there is one fast insulin available and one slow. Uh, that's illegal. If you go to Canada, it costs it costs a fifth to a tenth the price. All right, right across the river in Windsor from you know from Detroit. Right. Uh, it, and this is this kind of thing could be stopped tomorrow because the laws are already on the books. You get ten years of felony hard time for attempting to monopolize a restraint trade. Like that law has not been repealed. The medical industry has twice tried to get themselves declared exempt from this. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. The first case was Royal Drug in 1979. The Supreme Court said, no, you're not exempt. These laws apply. There should have been a bevy of indictments right then and there. There was not. There hasn't been one federal criminal charge leveled since for this behavior, not one. And and that's where the problem is. So the the problem that you have with doing that, though, is that if you look at where the hiring has come from, um, and, and I track this stuff all the time, we are putting about 300 to 400,000 people a year to work supposedly in the medical field. Of those, 95, 90 to 95% are administrators. They never provide a single second of care to a single person and not doctors and nurses. All right. We are actually on balance losing doctors, not by a lot, but we are. And we are, we have a mildly positive nurse addition rate in the United States. Everybody, essentially all of the net employment ads are people that do not provide any care at all. They are part of the extortion racket that steals your money. And if you stop that, those people all lose their jobs. Carl, there seems to be a, on the medical topic, and, and I know you uh, have uh, uh, kind of opted out of the, the medical system, and it seems like a lot of people um, are looking at alternate type of care. They're looking at uh, that there's this whole uh, new industry that is basically fee-for-service, bypassing the, the insurance companies. Um, are we on the verge of having two healthcare systems in the country, one for those that can afford to pay cash and then one for everybody else? Um, yeah, except yes and no, except it really doesn't. It's, it's, it's more serious than that, if you think about it, because for those who can pay at the current prices, they still aren't going to be able to pay. Okay, that's the that's I mean, it, when you think about it, that's where the you know, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Is that you say, well, those people can pay. Well, at what? At, at 500% jacked up prices? 
that's that's just nonsense either way. All right. So what are you seeing now in in the you know in the private world is that is that a surprising number of people have figured this out and they're doing things like getting on a plane going to India to have bypass done. And and uh, you know, and and gee, isn't it funny how the doctor over there was trained in America? He went to an American medical school, and and all the instruments and all the all the equipment was made. You know, I mean, it's all General Electrics or you know whoever's. It's it's the same equipment that's in any American hospital. Uh, but there's no there's no insurance. You pay cash, and it's it's five percent of what you would pay over here for the same thing. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy, and and I think that you can probably make the same case for uh, prescription drugs. Uh, is that not the case? Well, yeah, it is the case. The uh, you know the the amusing part of this is that formally it's illegal for you to go, go across the border and and you know buy your prescription drugs and then bring them back. Um, to date, Customs Border Patrol uh, ignores this. Okay, it is technically against the law for you to do it, but they ignore it. However, if you take a suitcase and fill it full of that and try to do something about this, these distortions in the market, you actually try to break the monopolies, that they will throw you in prison for. So, Kyle, let me let me uh, shift gears here just a second because uh, getting back to the economy, um, there is a lot of political pressure from the administration on the Fed to uh, cut interest rates by over 1% and uh, go back to QE. There's also some talk of uh, payroll tax cuts, and at the same time, we're hearing that um, this is a great, strong economy. Um, uh, obviously, there's some big concerns about the economy with an election coming up. Well, yeah, and, and you know, you have you have the essence of this being that all that we have a government that cares about right now is that the market doesn't crash. I mean, that's that's literally all they care about is that, uh, you know, you have a president that gets on the air every day and says, the market, that, you know, if the Federal Reserve was to do this, the Dow would be up 10,000 points. But, excuse me? <laughs> that's now the definition of whether or not, uh, you know, everything is wonderful or not. By the way, the, the Dow might go up 10,000 points, but the cost of medical of, of having your appendix out would double again. How does this help the average person? Right. Uh, and, and here's the other problem. Unless you happen to be in the 0.1%, not not reasonably well off economically, but in the 0.1%, you cannot get enough return out of the market to cover the acceleration in cost because all you can invest is your economic surplus. Okay, you got to remember, the only thing you can invest is that which is excess of what you need to live on. So asset price appreciation can never rescue the common person. It's impossible. Well, and I think that uh, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, the middle class is uh, is evaporating. I mean, the, 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 there's no disputing the fact that the wealth gap has widened significantly since these economic policies have been put in place. Well, yeah, and it's intentional. And, you know, the thing is, is that everybody runs around and says, you know, oh, look at how wonderful this is and that is. Well, sure, if, if you happen to be in the top 1%, you, you did quite well. Okay, you've, you've, you've done wonderfully. Uh, if you happen to run a corporation, a public company, oh, my Lord. Okay, but, you know, you look at what's going on, like, with, these, with the buybacks that are going on in the, in, you know, in the world today. All that is is a transfer of ownership from common stockholders, that is, common people, to the executives. 
That's all that is. They, they right. take on debt, they buy back shares, and then they issue those shares in restricted stock to the executives. Well, the, the mechanics of this sound complicated, but when you boil it all down, what it means is that if, if common shareholders own 75% of the company, when they get done doing this, common shareholders own 50% of the company. Where'd the rest of it go? Into the pockets of the executives. They stole it from you. Well, at one point in uh, U.S. history, I believe that stock buybacks were actually illegal. But I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was sometime in the maybe in the 80s, uh, stock buybacks uh, once again became legal. At one time, it was considered to be uh, price manipulation of stocks. Well, so it was fraud. It was it was treated as criminal fraud because it is. Well, we are going to have to leave it there, Carl. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, our guest today has been Carl Denninger. You can check out his uh, blog at market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to do that. And, uh, Carl, thanks for joining us today. Love to have you back sometime soon. Anytime. Thank you. We will be back after these words. I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. You know, and in this segment, I want to share with you a bit about what I shared with uh, readers to my client newsletter last month. And I talked about the fact that negative yielding government debt early in August increased $1 trillion in less than two days worldwide. Now, it's increased by another $2 trillion. It's now about $17 trillion of debt, government debt, government bonds, that are yielding negative interest rates. Now, that's huge news, and it should be a monster red flag to which you should pay attention. Think about it. You agree to buy a bond that will pay you back less than you've invested when the bond matures. Now, if you... Take a look at an example of this. You can buy a bond from the country of Switzerland, and after holding your money for 50 years, the Swiss government is nice enough to give you back less than you gave them. Now, who on earth would do that? You know, the only way that would make sense to a rational person is if the purchasing power of the money you loaned the Swiss government increase significantly over that 50-year time frame. Now, as we all know, that is not likely to happen. So the big question is this. How do we make sense of this? What is motivating investors to take negative interest rates? Why on earth would someone make an investment and agree 50 years in the future to take a small loss? Could it be that many investors think, that a small predefined and predetermined loss is the best of all the available alternatives? In other words, is this the lesser of all the evils? Well, that's part of it, but the other part of this is explained nicely in a MarketWatch article that was published this past week on August 22. And in the article, a gentleman by the name of James Bianco, who is founder of Bianco Research, said there's a big misunderstanding about negative-yielding debt. Owners of bonds yielding negative interest rates have been seeing huge price increases. 
negative yields have actually been a cash cow. When bond prices go up, yields go down. So as yields move from positive to negative, bondholders have the ability to sell their bonds at a profit. So as we've seen yields fall and have and we've seen $17 trillion of government debt go negative over this past uh, year, this past summer, we have seen investors holding these bonds make big profits. For example, Austria issued a 100-year bond, and when it was issued, you agreed to loan the country of Austria money for 100 years and earn 2.1%. Well, as these bonds have appreciated, the yield has now dropped to 0.71%. So a lot of what's driving this as well is the greater fool theory. You know, you saw the greater fool theory in real estate here 10 or 12 years ago prior to the real estate market collapsing. We all know inherently that an asset, including real estate, cannot appreciate at double-digit rates year after year after year, and the greater fool theory simply says that I only need to have it appreciate until I find somebody else to sell it to, until I find the greater fool. Well, that works until it doesn't, and all bubbles burst. Now, recently, former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan weighed in on negative interest rates. He said in a Bloomberg article, that zero really has no meeting. He says there's no barrier for U.S. Treasury yields going below zero. Zero has no meaning besides being a certain level. I would respectfully disagree with Mr. Greenspan. Zero or negative interest rates have huge meaning. It goes against the basic principles of finance, and when something goes against the basic principles of finance, it won't last. And that's why bubbles never last and always burst. So as this trend toward negative interest rates continues to accelerate, investors will increasingly look for alternative places to park their capital. So we look for tangible assets, as we've been talking, to get traction among investors. And it's already happening. Gold began the year at $1,300 an ounce. It's now at about $1,530. That's a year-to-date gain of about 18%. Now, negative interest rates will be accompanied by more money printing. You know, if you are not familiar with the whole idea of Keynesian economics, uh, Keynesian economics is appropriately named for John Maynard Keynes, who's the economist that pioneered the theory. And Mr. Keynes just simply advocated that in times of economic hardship, Governments increase spending and reduce taxes. And the part of Keynes' theory that politicians forget is that during good times, governments should run surpluses. Now, in fairness to to Mr. Keynes, his initiative was only to be used in times of dire emergency, and now we use it even in mild downturns. Now, if you take a look at the effect this is having and the fallout that will will, uh, be be experienced by probably every single one of us. Uh, There's a lot to talk about. But in the time I have less, let let me just give you an example of how it will affect pension plans. 
Think about pensions that have bonds that are yielding negative interest rates. I mean, typically pensions will ladder or stagger the maturity date of the bonds that they own. And as bonds come due that are yielding a decent coupon rate, they are now replaced with bonds that are potentially even yielding negative rates. That means that pensions now have to dig into their capital to pay out their pension benefits versus maybe just paying out the gains. And if you look at the recent protests in France, they were related to this problem. The French government decided to stop indexing the pensions of the French population to the French inflation rate. Could that have had something to do with the fact that they had no choice? They weren't distributing income on the pension fund anymore. They were distributing capital. Now, I look for this trend to continue. If you'd like to learn more, I'll mention these websites again. You could attend one of our educational events where we talk about this as well as other topics. Uh, You could visit socialsecuritydinner.com to learn more about an upcoming event in your area. And we have additional resources also available on our website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's my show for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back here again next week.